Chapter Three of Farewell Nicola by Guy Boothby. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three. In the previous chapter, I recorded the surprise I felt at Miss Trevor's acceptance of Doctor Nicola's invitation to a gondola excursion. Almost as suddenly as she had shown her fear of him, she had recovered her tranquillity, and the result, as I have stated, was complete perplexity on my part. With a united desire to reserve our energies for the evening, we did not arrange a long excursion for that afternoon, but contented ourselves with a visit to the church of S. S. Giovanni e Paolo. Miss Trevor was quite recovered by this time, and in very good spirits. She and Glenbarth were on the most friendly terms. Consequently, my wife was a most happy woman. Isn't it nice to see them together, she whispered as we crossed the hall and went down the steps to our gondola. They are suited to each other almost as, well, if I really wanted to pay you a compliment, which you don't deserve, I should say as we are. Do you notice how prettily she gives him her hand, so that he may help her into the boat? I do, I answered grimly, and it only shows the wickedness of the girl. She is as capable of getting into the boat without assistance as he is. And yet you help her yourself every time you get the chance, my wife retorted. I have observed you take greatest care that she should not fall, even when the step has only been one of a few inches, and I have been left to get down by myself. Perhaps you cannot recall that day at Capri. I have the happiest recollections of it, I replied. I helped her quite half a dozen times. And yet you grudge that poor boy the opportunities that you yourself were once so eager to enjoy. You cannot deny it. I'm not going to attempt to deny it, I returned. I do grudge him his chances, and why shouldn't I? Has she not the second prettiest hands? the second neatest ankle in all Europe. My wife looked up at me with a suspicion of a smile hovering around her mouth. When she does that, her dimples are charming. And the neatest, she inquired, as if she had not guessed. Women can do that sort of thing with excellent effect. Lady Hatteras, may I help you into the gondola, I said politely. And for some reason best known to herself, the reply appeared to satisfy her. Of one thing there could be no sort of doubt. Miss Trevor had taken a decided liking to Glenbarth, and the young fellow's delight in her company was more than equal to it. By my wife's orders, I left them together as much as possible during the afternoon. That is to say, as far as was consistent with the duties of an observant chaperon. For instance, while we were in the right aisle of the church, examining the mausoleum of the Doge Pietro Moncenigo and the statues of Lombardi, they were in the choir proper, before the famous tomb of Andrea Vendramin, considered by many to be the finest of its kind in Venice. As we entered the choir, they departed into the left transept. I fancy, however, Glenbarth must have been a little chagrined when she, playing her hand according to the recognised rules, suggested they should turn back in search of us. Back they came accordingly to be received by my wife, with a speech that still further revealed to me the duplicity of women. You two are naughty children, she said, with a fairly simulated wrath. Where on earth have you been? We've been looking for you everywhere. You're so slow, put in Miss Trevor, and then she added, without a quaver in her voice or a blush upon her cheek, we dawdled about in order to let you catch us up. I thought it was time for me to interfere. Perhaps I should remind you, young people, that at the present moment you are in a church, I said. Would it not be as well, do you think, for you to preserve those pretty little prevarications until you're in the gondola? 
you'll be able to quarrel in greater comfort there you'll also give phyllis time to collect her thoughts and prepare a new indictment my wife treated me to a look that would have annihilated another man after that i washed my hands of them and turned to the copy of titian's martyrdom of saint peter which victor emmanuel had presented to the church in place of the original which had been destroyed later on we made our way by a long series of tortuous thoroughfares to the piazza of st mark where we intended to sit in front of florian's calf and watch the people until it was time for us to return and dress for dinner as i have already said miss trevor had all the afternoon been in the best of spirits nothing could have been happier than her demeanour when we left the church yet when we reached the piazza everything was changed apparently she was not really unhappy nor did she look about her in the frightened way that had struck me so unpleasantly on the previous evening it was only her manner that was strange first she was silent then as if she were afraid we might notice it she set herself to talk as if she were doing for mere talking's sake then without any apparent reason she became as silent as a mouse once more remembering what had happened that morning before breakfast i did not question her nor did i attempt to rally her upon the subject to have done either would have been to have risked a reoccurrence of the catastrophe we had so narrowly escaped earlier in the day i accordingly left her alone and my wife in the hope of distracting her attention entered upon an amusing argument with glenbarth upon the evils attendant upon excessive smoking which was the young man's one and so far as i knew only failing unable to combat her assertions he appealed to me for protection take my part there's a good fellow he said pathetically i'm not strong enough to stand against lady hatteras alone no i returned you must fight your own battles when i see a chance of having a little peace i like to grasp it i'm going to take miss trevor to mayor's shop on the other side of the piazza in search of new photographs we'll leave you to quarrel in comfort here so saying miss trevor and i left them and made our way to the famous shop where i purchased for her a number of photographs of which she had expressed her admiration a few days before after that we rejoined my wife and glenbarth and returned to our hotel for dinner nicola as you may remember had arranged to call for us with his gondola at half past eight and ten minutes before that time i suggested that the ladies should prepare themselves for the excursion i bade them wrap up well for i knew by experience that it is seldom warm upon the water at night when they had left us the duke and i strolled on to the balcony i hope to goodness nicola won't frighten miss trevor this evening said my companion after we had been there a few moments i noticed that he spoke with an anxiety that was by no means usual with him she is awfully sensitive you know and when he likes he can curdle the very marrow in your bones i shouldn't have liked her to have had heard the story he told us this morning i suppose there's no fear of his repeating it to-night i should not think so i returned nicola has more tact in his little finger than you and i have in our whole bodies he would be scarcely likely to make such a mistake no i rather fancy that to-night we shall see a new side of his character for my own part i am prepared to confess that i am looking forward to the excursion with a good deal of pleasure i am glad to hear it glenbarth replied as i thought with a savour of sarcasm in his voice i only hope you won't have reason to regret it this little speech set me thinking was it possible that glenbarth was jealous of nicola surely he could not be foolish enough for that that miss trevor had made an impression upon him was apparent 
but it was full early for him to grow jealous, and particularly of such a man. While I was thinking of this, the ladies entered the room. At the same moment we heard Nicholas Gondola draw up at the steps. I thought Miss Trevor looked a little pale, but though still very quiet, she was more cheerful than she had been before dinner. Our guide has arrived, I remarked, as I closed the windows behind us. We'd better go down to the hall. Miss Trevor, if you will accompany me, the Duke will bring Phyllis. We must not keep Nicola waiting. We accordingly left our apartments and proceeded downstairs. I trust you are looking forward to your excursion, Miss Trevor, I said, as we descended the stairs. If I'm not mistaken, you will see Venice tonight under circumstances such as you could never have dreamed of before. I do not doubt it, she answered simply. It will be a night to remember. Little did she guess how true her prophecy was destined to be. It was indeed a night that every member of the party would remember all his or her life long. When we had reached the hall, Nicola had just entered it, and was in the act of sending up a servant to announce his arrival. He shook hands with my wife, and then with Miss Trevor, afterwards with Glenbarth, and then myself. His hand was, as usual, as cold as ice, and his face was deathly pale. His tall, lithe figure was concealed by his voluminous coat, but what was lost in one direction was compensated for by the mystery that it imparted to his personality. For some reason I thought of Mistopheles as I looked at him, and in many ways the illustration does not seem an altogether inapt one. Permit me to express the gratification I feel that you consented to allow me to be your guide this evening, Lady Hatteras, he said, as he conducted my wife towards the boat. While it is an impertinence on my part to imagine I can add to your enjoyment of Venice, I fancy it is, nevertheless, in my power to show you a side of the city with which you are not as yet acquainted. The night being so beautiful, and believing that you would wish to see all you can, I have brought a gondola without a cabin. I trust I did not do wrong. I'm sure it would be delightful, my wife answered. It would have been unendurable on such a beautiful evening to be cooped up in a close cabin. Besides, we should have seen nothing. By this time we were on the steps, at the foot of which the gondola in question, a large one of its class, was lying. As soon as we had boarded her, the gondolier bent to his oar. The boat shot out into the stream, and the excursion, which, as I have said, we were each of us to remember all our lives, had commenced. If I shut my eyes now... I can recall the whole scene. The still moonlit waters of the canal, the houses on one side of which were brilliantly illuminated by the moon, the other being entirely in the shadow. When we were in midstream, a boat decorated with lanterns passed us. It contained a merry party, whose progress was enlivened by the strains of the invariable Funiculi Funicular. The words of the tune ring in my memory even now. Years before, we had grown heartily sick of the song. Now, however, it possessed a charm that was quite its own. How pretty it is, remarked my wife and Miss Trevor almost simultaneously. And the former added, I could never believe that it possessed such a wealth of tenderness. Might it not be that the association that is responsible put in Nicola gravely? You've probably heard that song at some time when you've been so happy that all the world has seemed the same. Hearing it tonight has unconsciously recalled that association, and Funiculi, Funicula, once so despised, immediately becomes a melody that touches your heartstrings, and so wins for itself a place in your regard that it can never altogether lose. 
We had crossed the canal by this time, the gondola with the singers proceeding towards the Rialto Bridge. The echo of the music still lingered in our ears, and seemed the sweeter by the reasons of the distance that separated us from it. Turning to the gondolier, who in the moonlight presented a picturesque figure in the stern of the boat, Nicola said something in Italian. The boat's head was immediately turned in the direction of a side street, and a moment later we entered it. It is not my intention, nor would it be possible for me to attempt to furnish you with a definite description of the route we followed. In the daytime, I flatter myself that I have knowledge of the Venice of the tourist. If you were to give me a pencil and paper, I believe I should be able to draw a rough outline of the city, and to place St. Mark's Cathedral, Galagatti's Hotel, the Rialto Bridge, the Arsenal, and certainly the railway station, in something like their proper positions. But at night, when I have left the Grand Canal, the city becomes a sealed book to me. On this particular evening, every street, when once we had left the fashionable quarter behind us, seemed alike. There was the same darkness, the same silence, and the same reflection of the lights in the water. Occasionally we happened upon places where business was still being transacted, and where the noise of voices smote the air with a vehemence that was like sacrilege. A few moments would then elapse and we were plunged into a silence that was almost unearthly. All this time Nicola kept us continually interested. Here was a house with a history as old as Venice itself. There the home of a famous painter, yonder the birthplace of a poet or a soldier, who had fought his way to fame by pen or sword. On one side of the street was the first dwelling of one who had been a plebeian and had died a doge, while on the other side was that of a man who had given his life to save his friend. Nor were Nicola's illustrations confined to the past alone. Men whose names were household words to us, and had preceded us, and seen Venice as we were seeing it now, of each he could tell us something we had never heard before. It was the perfect mastery of his subject, like that of a man who plays upon an instrument of which he has made a lifelong study. That astonished us. He could rouse in our hearts such emotions as he pleased, could induce us to pity at one moment and to loathing at the next, could make us see the city with his eyes, and in a measure to love it with his own love. That Nicola did entertain a deep affection for it was as certain of his knowledge of its history. I think I may say now, he said, when we had been absent from the hotel for upwards of an hour, that I have furnished you with a superficial idea of the city. Let me attempt after this to show you something of its inner life. That it will repay you, I think you will admit when you have seen it. Once more he gave the gondolier an order. Without a word, the man entered a narrow street on the right, and then turned to the left, after which to the right again. What are we going to see next? That it would be something interesting, I had not the least doubt. Presently, the gondolier made an indescribable movement with his oar, the first signal that he was about to stop. With two strokes, he brought the boat alongside the steps, and Nicola, who was the first to spring out, assisted the ladies to alight. We were now in a portion of Venice with which I was entirely unacquainted. The houses were old and lofty, though sadly fallen into decay. Where shops existed, business was still being carried on. But the majority of the owners of the houses in the neighbourhood appeared to be early birds, for no lights were visible in their dwellings. 
Once or twice men approached us and stared innocently at the ladies of our party. One of these, more impertinent than his companions, placed his hand upon Miss Trevor's arm. In a second, without any apparent effort, Nicola laid him upon his back. Do not be afraid, Miss Trevor, he said. The fellow has only forgotten himself for a moment. So saying, he approached the man, who scrambled to his feet and addressed him in a low voice. No, no, Your Excellency, the rascal whined. For the pity of the blessed saints, had I known it was you, I would not have dared. Nicola said something in a whisper to him. What it was, I have not the least idea. But its effect was certainly excellent, for the man slunk away without another word. After this little incident, we continued our walk without further opposition. We took several turnings, and at last found ourselves standing before a low doorway. That it was closely barred on the inside was evident from the sounds that followed, when in response to Nicola's knocks, someone commenced to open it. Presently an old man looked out. First he seemed surprised to see us, but when his eyes fell upon Nicola, all was changed. With a low bow he invited him in Russian to enter. Crossing the threshold we found ourselves in a church of the smallest possible description. By the dim light a priest could be seen officiating at the high altar, and there were possibly a dozen worshippers present. There was an air of secrecy about it all. The light, the voices, and the precautions taken to prevent a stranger entering, that appealed to my curiosity. As they turned to leave the building, the little man who admitted us crept up to Nicola's side and said something in a low voice to him. Nicola replied, and at the same time patted the man affectionately upon the shoulder. Then, with the same obsequious respect, the latter opened the door once more, and permitted us to pass out quickly, barring it behind us. And permitted us to pass out. You have seen many churches during your stay in Venice, Lady Hatteras, Nicola remarked, as we made our way back towards the gondola. I doubt very much, however, whether you have entered a stranger place of worship than that. I know that I have not, my wife replied. Pray, who were the people we saw there, and why was there so much secrecy observed? Because nearly all the poor souls you saw there are either suspect or wanted by the Russian government. They are fugitives from injustice, if I may so express it, and it is for that reason they are compelled to worship, as well as live, in hiding. But who are they? Nihilists, Nicola answered, a poor, hot-headed lot of people, who see their country drifting in a wrong direction have taken it in their heads to try and remedy matters by drastic measures. Finding their efforts hopeless, their properties confiscated, and they themselves in danger of death or exile, which is worse, they have fled from Russia. Some of them, the richest, manage to get to England. Some come to Venice. But knowing that the Italian police will turn them out to San Ceremoni if they discover them, they are compelled to remain in hiding until they are in a position to proceed elsewhere. "'Can you help them?' asked Miss Trevor in a strange voice, as if his answer were a foregone conclusion. "'What makes you think that?' Nicola inquired. "'Because the doorkeeper knew you, and you spoke so kindly to him.' "'The poor fellow has a son,' Nicola replied, "'a hot-headed young rascal who's got into trouble in Moscow. "'If he is caught, he will, without doubt, go to Siberia for the rest of his life. "'But he will not be caught.' "'Once more Miss Trevor spoke.' as if with authority and in the same hushed voice. You have saved him? He has been saved, the Nicola replied. He left for America this morning. The old fellow was merely expressing to me 
the gratification he felt at having got him out of such a difficulty. Now, here is our gondola. Let us get into it. We still have much to see, and time is not standing still with us. One thing impressed me throughout. Wherever we went, Nicola was known, and not only known, but feared and respected. His face was a key that opened every lock, and in his company the ladies were as safe in the roughest parts of Venice as if they had been surrounded by a troop of soldiery. When we had seen all that he was able to show us, it was nearly midnight, and time for us to be getting back to our hotel. I trust I have not tired you, he said, as the ladies took their places in the gondola for the last time. Not in the least, both answered at once, and I fancy my wife spoke not only for herself, but also for Miss Trevor, when she continued, we have spent a most delightful evening. You must not praise the performance until the epilogue is spoken, Nicola answered. I still have one more item on my programme. As he said this, the gondola drew up at some steps, where a solitary figure was standing, apparently waiting for us. He wore a cloak, carried a somewhat bulky object in his hand. As soon as the boat came alongside, Nicola sprang out and approached him. To our surprise, he helped him into the gondola and placed him in the stern. Tonight, Luigi, he said, you must sing your best for the honour of the city. The young man replied in an undertone, and then the gondola passed down a by-street, and a moment later we were back in the Grand Canal. There was not a breath of air, and the moon shone full and clear upon the placid water. Never had Venice appeared more beautiful. Away to the right was the piazza with the Cathedral of St. Mark, on our left were the shadows of the islands, the silence of Venice. There is no silence in the world like it. Lay upon everything. The only sound to be heard was the dripping of the water from the gondolier's oar as it rose and fell in rhythmic motion. Then the musician drew his fingers across the strings of his guitar, and after a little prelude commenced to sing. The song he had chosen was the Salve de Amora from Faust. Surely one of the most delightful melodies that has ever occurred to the brain of a musician. Before he had sung a dozen bars, we were entranced. Though not a strong tenor, his voice was one of the most perfect I have ever heard. It was of the purest quality, so rich and sweet that the greatest connoisseur could not tire of it. The beauty of the evening, the silence of the lagoon, and the perfectness of the surroundings helped it to appeal to us as no music it had ever done before. It was a significant proof of the effect produced upon us when he ceased not one of us spoke for some moments our hearts were too full for words by the time we had recovered ourselves the gondola had drawn up at the steps of the hotel and we had disembarked the duke and i desired to reward the musician nicola however begged us to do nothing of the kind he sings to-night to please me he said it would hurt him beyond words were you to offer him any other reward after that there was nothing more to be said, except to thank him in the best Italian we could muster for the treat he had given us. Why on earth does he not try his fortune upon the stage, asked my wife, when we had disembarked from the gondola and had assembled on the steps. With such a voice he might achieve a European reputation. Alas, answered Nicola, he will never do that. Did you notice his infirmity? Phyllis replied that she had not observed anything extraordinary about him. Poor fellow is blind, Nicola answered very quietly. He's a singing bird, shut up always in the dark. And now good night. I have trespassed too long upon your time already. He bowed to the ladies, shook hands with the Duke and myself, and before we had time 
to thank him for the delightful evening he had given us, was in his gondola once more and out in midstream. We watched him until he had disappeared in the direction of the Rio del Consiglio. After, we entered the hotel and made our way to our own sitting room. I cannot say when I have enjoyed myself so much, said my wife, as we stood talking together before bidding each other good night. Been delightful, said Glenbarth, whose little attack of jealousy seemed to have quite left him. Have you enjoyed it, Hatteras? I said something in reply. I cannot remember what, but I recollect that, as I did so, I glanced at Miss Trevor's face. It was still very pale, but her eyes shone with extraordinary brilliance. I hope you've had a pleasant evening, I said to her a few moments later when we were alone together. Yes, I think I can say that I have, she answered with a faraway look upon her face. The music was exquisite. The thought of it haunts me still. And having bade me good night, she went off with my wife, leaving me to attempt to understand why she had replied as she had done. And what do you think of it, my friend? I inquired of Glenbarth, when we had taken our cigars out into the balcony. I'm extremely glad we went, he returned quickly. There can be no doubt that you were right when you said it would show us Nicholas's character in a new light. Did you notice with what respect he was treated by everybody we met, and how anxious they were not to run the risk of offending him? Of course I noticed it, and you may be sure I drew my own conclusions from it, I replied. And those conclusions were? That Nicholas's character is even more inexplicable than before. After that we smoked in silence for some time. At last I rose and tossed what remained of my cigar over the rails into the dark waters below. It's getting late, I said. Don't you think we'd better bid each other good night? Perhaps we had, and yet I don't feel a bit tired. Are you quite sure that you've had a pleasant day? Quite sure, he said with a laugh. The only thing I regret is having heard that wretched story this morning. Do you recall the gusto with which Nicola related it? I replied in the affirmative and asked him his reason for referring to it now, because I could not help thinking of it this evening when his voice was so pleasant and his manner so kind. And I picture him going back to that house tonight, to that dreadful room, to sleep alone in that great building. It fairly makes me shudder. Oh, good night, old fellow. You have treated me royally today. I could scarcely have had more sensations compressed into my waking hours if I'd been a king. End of chapter three.